everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Lindsay Tabus, uh, who is the founder of Labs and a longtime friend of mine. So hello, Lindsay. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to get this conversation going. Me too. There's a lot to talk about. But first, if you wouldn't mind, share a little bit more with our audience about your background and how you got to be doing what you are today. Yeah, of course, of course. So uh, I started designing software in 2002, a fairly long time ago, when I was studying systems engineering in college. I got really excited about this idea of designing technology for people. And I went to Silicon Valley in 2005 with a twinkle in my eye. I had ridiculously large startup dreams and executed what we would call the startup blueprint, like to a T. Now, I was working full-time I'm doing uh, what's called now user experience uh, and product management. I was a business analyst, uh, and we could talk more about how terminology has changed over time. But on the weekends, I was following that startup blueprint. I was hacking away. I was looking for tech co-founders. I was in the top five of Women 2.0's business plan competition in 2008. I had stuff written up about me in TechCrunch and SF Weekly and NBC Bay Area. And you would all say that I was doing the thing, the thing that we are all told founders are told they need to do to be successful. But I wasn't. I kept kept hitting walls. And I never had a business that was making money with a huge impact. And I didn't have my freedom and flexibility. So I kind of left San Francisco at the end of 2009 with my tail between my legs, wondering if I was really cut out for the world. Now, a lot has changed over the past two decades since I started, uh, but I continued my career in New York City. I worked for two years there and set out on my own as an independent contractor, you know, really doing those roles, user experience design, product management, user research. I was hired by Techstars to... uh, meet with each one of their startups on a weekly basis for eight weeks and and help them with product and UX. And I also had the opportunity to run American Express's uh, usability testing lab, which was such a cool experience because they have access to so many more resources and so many more users and customers than you get with startups. But being a consultant, it's really hard, feast or famine doing whatever anyone sends you, uh, you have a hard time talking about your own position. So I knew I needed to productize my services. And that's when I decided to start building labs, product market fit for pre-seed startups. I was really tired of seeing well-intentioned, really caring entrepreneurs suffer from bad software development. They jump into software development right away thinking that that's how to start their business. The average project goes 3x over scope. And they struggle to connect with customers, blaming their lack of progress probably on the developers and not on the fact that they didn't do strong customer research up front. So Labs is a six-month experience centered around a course where I teach you how to push your business as far as possible, including even generating revenue without hiring software developers. 
So testing all of those hypotheses in a, in a lean way. Uh, I also teach you the skills that's going to close that get communication gap between you and software developers. And the final piece is that I, while I work with entrepreneurs, mostly I also behind the scenes have been performing due diligence on behalf of investors for the past five and a half years. So the third part of labs is what are all the machine parts that's going to make this car go vroom and investors want to actually talk to you. Okay, so um, I'm really proud of where Labs has has gotten, and I have some founders with some awesome success going on to getting into accelerators to continue getting the support they need, building their launch lists, uh, feeling like they actually have a business, which is killer. Um, So many different outcomes. Happy to talk about that. But I think we also have some really awesome topics queued up to talk about. That we do. I only have about a million questions for you. So we'll do the best (laughs) we can with the time we have. But your experience is incredible. I I know we've talked about this a lot offline, but uh, traveled a similar path. And I wish I had gotten connected to you when I started my first startup because I made just about every mistake in the book. Uh, building a solution to a problem that didn't exist that I didn't find out till much later. And of course, it was like unbelievably heartbreaking and an unfortunate lesson still to this day, way too many uh, startup founders and entrepreneurs have to go through in order to learn everything about what you just said. So um, it's excellent and amazing that you can get that in a package now from someone with your level of experience. I cannot recommend uh, people enough to go to all of the content that you produce and consume all of it because <laughs> yeah. it's very valuable stuff. But yeah. to your point, um, what we wanted to talk about more today and what I definitely wanted to pick your brain about was an area where you have a lot of expertise, which is in UX or user experience. And this topic that I know I'm very passionate about um, and in particular, identifying the differences, good, bad, and otherwise out in the wild, uh, pulling from the best principles in terms of how UX design has evolved over the years, which I know you have a lot of experience with as well too, but we'll start simple and then we'll get into the weeds from there. I'm going to ask you to kind of define it. Like how would you describe UX? Because uh, I used to say like, if you wanted, and I interchange the industry from time to time, but I would say, if you wanted four opinions, ask three people. (laughs) You get two opinions from at least one of those three people. So I I want to hear with all your expertise, uh, I want to hear your your take on UX, uh, and then we'll dive into a little bit more from there. Yeah. So I love that you said that was a simple place to start (laughs) because most people don't realize this. Most people know at face value that uh, it's hard to define user experience, user interface, user research architect, information architect, whatever. Uh, This conversation has been going on for well over 25 years. When I was in graduate school in 2005 at UC Berkeley, I had a reading assigned to me, which was a 15-page wiki of people in this field debating what is information architecture, what's visual design, information design, navigation design, user interface, who does what, who's responsible, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to speed up, though, to 2017 to tell you why I started Labs and why it says nothing about user experience. Everyone, because, well, not everyone, 
because everyone, a lot of people, don't know what user experience is. They don't hire it until after the product is built. That's a good point. But Don Norman, who you mentioned on a previous podcast, the godfather of this field. Totally. He said in a speech at when I was in grad school that if your UX-minded people are not at the decision-making table before you pick which projects to work on and which initiatives to pursue, that is the first mistake. Definitely. And a great point. Now, uh, you asked me to plug this later, uh, but I have a product market fit ebook where I bought three myths that we need to stop believing uh, to avoid the 90% failure rate. And the first one is something that I think is totally human. And I'll circle back to the definition again. But the first myth is that because we experience a problem and we figure out how to solve it for ourselves doesn't mean that there's enough people to make this a business. Good point. The classic way all of us go about problem solving, whether you're a startup founder or you're you know, the CTO of a Fortune 50 company, is making that mistake. We get anxious when we experience or hear of a problem so once we have a solution, that feels better, and we're high off of our own ideas, and we run forward, and then we don't listen to anyone else that has an opinion that tells us we might be wrong. Okay? All said. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back now to, like, the actual field of, so the field of user experience. So Excellent. I don't like the term because, and I decided to disassociate with the term because people don't hire it until it's too late. Good point. Okay. I also don't like it because let's take all these terms that I just mentioned previously, navigation, design, information, architecture, like visual design, UI, whatever. Sure. They all fall under this field that I'll call, that we can call human-computer interaction, HCI. Sure. Meeting of psychology and computer science. HCI is tasked with offering the world simpler interfaces, simpler ways to interact with things. But the interface that HCI has with the rest of the world, particularly around defining what it is and what it does, (laughs) is really poorly designed. Yeah, I already. And so, like, this argument, at a certain point, I was like, I'm done having it. Like, right. <laughs> I'm going to talk about product market fit and connecting with customers and making money. Yep. And I will teach skills that are very much UX skills, but I'm not going to call them UX. Because <laughs> right. if I told you Labs is a six month program to teach startups about UX, like, they're not hiring. They're not going to sign up for that, right? right? Mismatch, right? That's well Mismatch. said. Yeah. So, you know, it's designing, it's all designing technology for people. It's taking yourself out of it, your personal opinions, your way of doing things, and thinking about how the people you're serving need to find this, navigate this, read this, feel this, solve the X problem. True. That's what it, I mean, that's, that's where it's supposed to be. 
right? What boils down into, right? That's a good point about the mismatch between people not really understanding it. We've seen that elsewhere as well, too. And then it not being prioritized like it should be, which is unfortunate. But regardless, however, we need to match things up. You're clearly helping people focus on what they need to be in the way that they understand it, which I would even argue is to say is potentially falls into the category of UX, right? Good UX. <laughs> you did a nice play on words there. But um, I want to I want to go like a step further from that as well, too, in terms of there's a lot of focus that goes into the terminology, which steals a lot of the thunder of these conversations because we wind up talking about like what it is instead of just doing it or like doing it as well as we can, right? What would you say, and I know we talked about Norman Nielsen Group, The Design of Everyday Things, which is an absolutely amazing book, which if anyone hasn't read, they absolutely should. I know you're a big fan as well, too. But how should people be thinking about how to do it well, right? Whatever they call it, um, as we understand it, or like creating a, a delightful user experience, right? Um, what, what does that even mean? Like what? How would you describe that in terms of achieving an objective like that? Because, you know, obviously there's different systems of opinions. We're designing for different users, we're designing different interfaces, those types of things. So I'm like, what does it look like? Like, how will you know if you have designed uh, a decent user experience or if you haven't? Love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about it in, in terms of product market fit Please. and what that means. So to me, product market fit is your business and product meet the expectations of your current market that you are able to reach. And I'm really specific about the wording of that because when you are a tiny startup with just an idea, you can only reach your early evangelists, which like should be a very tiny audience, very microscopic. Target market, that number that you give to investors, that's not small enough for product development at an early stage, right? Well said. As you, as you grow, it's, it's a question of does adding this feature or making this improvement satisfy our existing market or the next market that we'd like to con, you know, consider? Yep. So that being said, uh, in my ebook, which I hope you link in the show notes and it's on Definitely. my website, can't miss it on my website, is once you know which problem you need to solve for that early evangelist, uh, you need to look at product development as co-designing with your customers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now yep. the tech, now the technical term, and and this is something like I'm not inventing this. Okay. So yep. one of the things about all this terminology conversation and what it is and what the rules are and whatever is like academics have put terms to this. Academics have studied this. There are journals that articles from the 90s, even 80s about this. The technical term in the field of human computer action is called participatory design. Okay. I just call it co-design with your customers, right? Every single iteration of your product, you should be looking for user input at the front of the cycle and user input at the back end of the cycle once you have updated your prototype. Now, that might sound expensive, but you got to choose the right tools and the right amount of people you interact with to get feedback based on 
the impact of whatever you are redesigning. So mm -hmm. if you want to measure good, you know, user experience and good usability, you know, keep a cadre of customers close. So for the low-hanging fruit, having an informal customer advisory panel that you can shoot an email to with some quick questions about like, hey, like, what are your, you know, folders in your email right now? What are the names of it? How many top-level folders do you have? Something quick like that while you're designing. Funny enough, I'm thinking about this is that the woman that introduced us, Ellen Weber, she was one of my customer, informal customer advisors because I did user experience for Gust.com. And she's cool. the you know, manager of Robin Hood Angel. That one's ventures. amazing. Yeah. So, so maybe it's just as easy as getting some quick information from yep. your informal customer advisors. And maybe it's as formal as recruiting mm. 20 customers to do deep interviews or... In between, I usually say, hey, anywhere from three to six users to usability test and click through your prototype. Like, as long you can pick up real, like, a, so like a lot of errors, right? Yep. Right, right away, right away, just from putting, putting your prototype in front of or designs or picturing. You can even do it with kindergarten skills of paper and pencil. You'd totally. be surprised that people don't need a fully built thing to respond to it if you recruit the right people, right? So that there's a lot of technicality in that. But I think uh, keeping close to your customers, never going too long without talking to them, interviewing yep. them. And really, I want to emphasize talking interviewing, interacting, because too many people just do it off of like data analytics or market trends Great and point. don't, they do anything to avoid talking to real people. Right. Right. That's where the value is though. You're so right about that. I get a lot of folks too that have, when I've asked for this information that you're talking about, which is so important to get, they say, well, I've got this survey data. Right. And that's always missing the most important element for me, which is the why. Like you mm -hmm. might have what they did, you might have how they did it, but you don't have the why, the fundamental, like most important motivating factor to what your customer either does or doesn't do or wants to do or doesn't want to do. Right. And you just like you said, you can't get that without talking to them. Um, yes. Yeah. There, there, there's a lesson in labs where I just briefly hit on the difference between qualitative and quantitative awesome. and primary and secondary so that you understand how to get the full picture. Um, qu qualitative, it doesn't, can include surveys depending on how you ask the questions right. uh, and the options you give them, but you're really going to get the richest amount of information in interviews. Definitely. Sure. I've always felt that before you get to the survey step, like get the qualitative data first so that you can mm -hmm. make a good survey, right? Because I've never been able to put together a good survey or questions I want to ask until I start speaking yeah. with somebody first. And that first conversation may not be as, as valuable as some of your later conversation, but that's okay because the process is meant to start where it starts and then improve from that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I always especially with the way labs is designed is like the I it's the ideal 
user-centered design UX experience, which is doing these deep dive of interviews, combining it with some uh, like competitive research, observational research, putting together from that analysis, like what the problem is, what your top five solutions are, and any other behavioral questions, and then scaling your findings in a survey. Uh, there's some technicalities I could go into that, but I do go into surveys and there's usability principles that you need to heed in surveys. There was one thing I did want to say about like judging user experience and what it is. You mentioned on your last uh, podcast, uh, just as you did a few minutes ago, Don Norman's Design of Everyday Things. That book was assigned to me twice, once in undergrad while I was studying engineering and again when I was studying user interface design and development in graduate school. He defines this term called the gulf of evaluation. It's the time it takes between when someone sees your product for the first time and figures out how to use it. So the example I use is like, most landing pages and most new brand new apps people download you have like 17 7 to 14 seconds for them to figure it out before they jump right so your golf of the evaluation time, right? right so anyone in the audience can realize it's it's easy to realize bad bad design right yep. like uh i downloaded this app it didn't tell me what value it's giving me at all. And it's asking me to sign up right away. Yep. Yeah, delete, right? right? But I had a really successful project uh, with uh, coaching a UX designer where it was about, they were launching a partnership. It was Fastmail and 1Password launches pa- partnership. Cool. And they need to make sure their landing page and sign up experience was seamless. And they have a conversion rate of, on the landing page. Once they sign up, it's like a 42% conversion to paid accounts. And it's because we really focused on how a person, what they know when they first see like the press release or the tweet, what they need to know at the landing page, just in order to hit sign up what they need to know on the sign up form just in order for them to se- select submit Love and then that. what they need to see just it's a story and you you have to tell it really really well in both the design and the copy it's so great i love the sequential element that you mentioned there right it br- it brings back um instances of things that i've studied where they talk about like overwhelming like selection anxiety and how less is more and all these types of elements to help people make decisions the way that's easiest for them, right? The most straightforward, like for the longest time I used Casper, the mattress company as an example of what, how less can be more. And like mattresses were flying off of their figurative shelves. Cause I don't think they had inventory at the time, but it was because they sold one. <laughs> you get to their website. It's like, which one do you want to buy? It's like, what do you mean? I don't even need to worry about that. Right. I right. just, I want a mattress and there's only one. And I love that because and that was a great comparison too, because I don't know if you've ever walked into a mattress store. I imagine you probably have, but as soon as I go in there and I'm like, there's 50 of them like in there, 50 mattresses. And you're like, <laughs> like lying on, on all one, of them. And, yeah, I just get frustrated. And I rage quit. Right. Isn't like, I can't tell the difference between these. This one costs double that one. They feel the mm-hmm. same. 
I'm out, right? Yep. So you are making the job significantly harder for your customer. So that's mm-hmm. that's essentially kind of a, a real life example of what you just described, right? Uh, in physical, uh, we're talking about like physical products, but like step that out, right? Make it mm-hmm. make it a series of sequential steps, but along the lines of what's most what's optimal for your customer. Yeah. So I'd love to impart a little more knowledge on this. On Definitely. What you just hit it's a on. big one. So there's something you talked about. Uh, I don't know Tim's last name or Yuli. Yuli. Like yeah. That. Yeah. You guys were talking about how sometimes it's important in an app for the user to struggle in order to figure things mm. out. I'd love right? your take on this. So the actual concept that I can share to kind of capture this is there's uh, use of, there's features that you design for basic users and there's features that you design for advanced users. Well said. Ideally... You design everything first for the basic user, and then you design advanced user shortcuts. So the example is when the first word processor came out, you had to select edit and select copy. Okay? That's the basic user experience. That's going to be the most straightforward way for anyone, whether they're basic user or advanced user, to find that piece of functionality. Then came right-click. Then came Control-C. Okay. Another really simple example is adding a printer. Now, adding a printer is usually a step-by-step process in most operating systems because you don't do it that often. So for features that you're adding that people do not do often, you're going to want to only design the basic user experience in the case of printers that's uh, you know the steps to completion step one step two step three step four right we're yeah. not gonna go ahead and try to teach everyone how to use the terminal to add right. a new printer right so you can constrain the level of work you put into launching a feature by thinking about design for the basic and then design for the advanced later and only do advanced advanced kind of shortcuts like that um, when it's something that people do all of the time. We would hate if it was a steps to completion just to copy text and paste it. (laughs) But with like a printer... We don't do it that often. We don't need sure. an advanced user experience. So it's about, uh, and this is something that you guys also focus on. It's about focusing on the what. There's the most you know minimal viable product, but there's also yep. like the minimal viable processes, the things that like you have to always cover, and yep. it has to be super useful and usable. Like PayPal. I'm going to give one more example. PayPal has to make it always easy for me to pay you and you to pay me. If it's difficult, then like their business is over. If you're looking for the embed code for donate button to put to your website in PayPal, it's not easy to find. You're going to have to search for it. But like, I know that it's not 
a good use of PayPal's resources to prioritize making it super easy to find the embed code for the donate button. Awesome. So as product managers, as founders, you really need to think about what are the minimum steps the user needs to take to get the value as quick as possible. And that needs to be as seamless as possible. And everything else we can worry about later. Or never, because I'm pretty sure the web pages for the donate button look the exact same as they did 15 years ago. <laughs> right. Well said. I love this construct that you shared, which simultaneously gives you a great place to start without getting overwhelmed and does a good job of describing just how much nuance goes into achieving like successful or high quality UX, right? In the designing around the basic and the, the more advanced user. The, what what I, my thought immediately jumped to when you described that workflow of like the copy, paste, or like the select and copy is that a lot of the basic users are perfectly happy continuing to use that, that workflow and not learning the advanced concepts. And they'll use that forever. I just don't know people that hunt and peck on a keyboard yeah. <laughs> and they do so rather like delightfully for them, right? <laughs> Frustrates me. <laughs> but that's but why we need to know who we're actually designing for. Exactly what I was thinking. It's like, I think it connected a few dots in my head when you described that, because I think something I know I've done and I'm guilty of doing, and I have to be work very hard not to do this is I want to jump immediately to designing for the advanced user, because I just assume that the majority of users are going to want to do it in that way. But that may not necessarily be true. In fact, most of the time it's probably the exact opposite of the case, right? We want to design for, like you said, different types of users. And that can also happen in sequence, right? We don't need to design a ton of different workflows to begin with. We need to design one. And we yeah. should design the one that applies to the most people. This does get into the concept of personas and how they're actually yep. supposed to be used. You're supposed to select your primary user and your secondary user. The idea is that every new feature makes both happy. But in the event that something, the second the the secondary user wants something that the primary user doesn't want. If we can design it without deprecating the primary user experience and primary persona, awesome. But if it's sure. going to affect the primary user experience, then we don't we we don't want to build it like that, right? We don't want to prioritize yep. that. So it also helps you prioritize features and feature requests to say, who, what type of user is this coming from? Have we heard it from enough of them? And is this our primary, our secondary, or like not even anyone we really need to care about? And that's a problem a lot of teams have is one, agreeing on who those people are. Right, because every single person on a product team is looking at it from their egocentric lens. Oh. Right. If you can, then we can reduce a lot of time in meetings because we can eliminate personal conjecture, and that would be beautiful. It certainly would be. <laughs> we can just say, "What does our primary persona want? Not you. Not you. Not you. What do they want?" I'm glad you brought this up because this is something else I was going to ask you about. I see this all the time too where just got out of a meeting where we're working on, you know, designing a workflow for a product uh, for a nonprofit and we're going back and forth between what someone else on the product team thinks and what me on the product team thinks. And it's like, 
none of that is really relevant. <laughs> We've gotten deep into the weeds here. And right. sometimes it takes longer than it should. And I'm like, we got to go back to the user, right? Like this should not be us debating which one of these we should use because we're not, that's not who it's being designed for. So yeah. how do you instill this principle in folks in terms of like, I try to think of it in terms of a routine or what are the guiding principles you have for them to prevent a lot of that lost time and effort, which can really jeopardize the quality of the product experience because they're not, they're getting away from what got them to wherever they are, right? They're not, they're making decisions the way that they shouldn't be. Um, they're asking for opinions from folks that really is not relevant, not as relevant. This is a big, this is a big, heavy thing on my heart and shoulders, Sean, because I think that I don't work full time on product teams anymore because I have a very low tolerance for personal conjecture mm. um, and the bastardization also. of, of, of uh, software projects because uh, someone cannot let go of their own opinion. I have a few videos on my YouTube channel. Uh, this short link for my YouTube channel is lindsayt.com forward slash YouTube. But there's about three or four vi videos about agile product team problems. And one of it is eliminating personal conjecture uh, awesome. The other is about pixel pushing and how it's not, it's an antithesis to agile and lean design. Um, I can tell you what has worked for me in the past. Awesome. Uh, this, this goes also to some heartache uh, historically for me. So when agile and lean became the guiding principle over waterfall software development in the last 12 to 15 years, it seems like all the new people to software threw the baby out with the bathwater. There are a lot of good things in Waterfall that we are not doing today that should be done. Writing clear user stories, writing clear use cases, defining the step-by-step, -step, like what the user needs to do, you know, so taking true. the time to do like wireframes with annotations, stuff like that. But if you do that work up front, particularly use case, user stories, and like the initial set of business requirements, everyone has to agree as to who they are serving before right. designs, design actual, you know, pen to paper um, right. starts. So that piece has like largely been thrown out of the product team workflow. And mm -hmm. it's something that saddens me. It's really frustrating yeah. to me. Um, you don't have to write the use cases for the entire system <laughs> the way Waterfall did, but like... Product managers taking the time to write use cases and user stories and business requirements, like that's a lost art. The other lost True. art is like unified modeling language and drawing activity diagrams, um, mm. actual sequential activity diagrams with swim lanes presented to developers before you start drawing can actually yep. help you learn what kind of technical constraints you're working with so that you don't go all the way through design and then bring it into a sprint planning meeting and find out that like, well, the way that we define a registered user versus another type of user 
we can actually build this. Right. Insert magic here. Yeah. Yeah. I always, when I was working full-time, I'd always say, you know, I'm a UX designer with a systems engineering background. I can talk to you about database design and object-oriented programming. And I promise you, I will not build, design you something you cannot build in the time we have. Love it. Um, so back to the original question, where did we start with this? I, I know I go off a little on tangents. <laughs> no, I think it's just you like did how do, how a does lot it of context to help, right? It's basically okay. like keeping the folks on track isn't like right. And referring back to these, I think you've given great examples of how to do that. Here's the other thing. Yep. Take the time take the time to actually do two to three personas and get agreement from the team. And maybe it's something you have to come back to on a yearly basis or biannually. But one of the things I did while working for Gust was I wrote out these personas like a character bio. And there was a binder for every new developer that came on the team. And they read about the personas. And that captured a lot of the user research that we had already done. And it was part of their onboarding to the team. Love that. And so that, you know, and I hung those around the office and maybe I did it to an obnoxious extent. If you ever talked to any of my coworkers, let me know. But, you know, if if you're meeting in one room all the time, if you are on site right now, like taping your personas up, right, to the, the walls so you remind people that we're not designing for ourselves. And the final thing I'll say is that there are a lot of tenants about what it makes a good designer um, and design thinker that I learned when I was in graduate school. One of which is you cannot be stubborn. If if the usability test comes back and people couldn't figure out how to use it, don't call it a user error. (laughs) (laughs) Don't blame them. Don't blame the victim. Right. And, you know, don't, die on a sword and drag people through from a 30-minute meeting to a 60-minute meeting because you would like to introduce a brand new use case when we're finally ready to build the product. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's all said. Oh, that's so much great advice. Should I work on my stand-up set? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're in a good spot. That routine would kill <laughs> a lot of places, a lot of venues where I would want it to be shared. Um, amazing. Uh, Lindsay, obviously I could continue to talk about all of these topics with you pretty much forever. Uh, probably do one better though, and just have you back on the show so we can continue the conversation in a lot of areas that we also want to explore. But one, before I do that, <laughs> you're right. Just installments. We can have a series uh, is uh, first question. What resources would you recommend for audience where they can go to kind of learn more about anything we talked about any cool stuff you're working on? Um, I know we mentioned a few already, but like to, kind of list anything in particular if you haven't had an opportunity to plug something. Yeah. Okay. So first and foremost, I'll lead with the book we've mentioned, Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. It's gone through a bunch of iterations. It will change how you think about the spaces, places, and things all around you. Uh, And that is a great start to start (laughs) <laughs> you know, noticing right. good design and bad design around you and building kind of that um, experience in your in your brain to use later. Um, two, uh, for those of you that are, you know, kicking off new projects or you're struggling to, 
to get that product market fit piece, uh, go to my website, download my ebook, uh, The Candid Truth About Product Market Fit, The Three Myths We Need to Stop Believing in Order to Avoid the 90% Failure Rate. Two other things. I mentioned my YouTube channel. There's like 150 plus videos where I answer a ton of questions and I'm leave a comment. I'm always happy to answer more. And weekly on Mondays, you can find me at 4 p.m. Eastern in the Startup Club on Clubhouse answering questions about product market fit and customer research. And the short link to that is going to be lindsayt.com forward slash Clubhouse. That'll take you to the next upcoming uh, room, which is this coming Monday at 4 p.m. Well, it doesn't matter when you post this because it'll always be this coming Monday. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Works well. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Excellent resources. Uh, Thank you for sharing. We'll link to all of those and I recommend it. All the listeners go and get copies of what's been recommended and then tune in obviously to hear Lindsay for sure. Some amazing advice beyond what we've talked about in this podcast. Uh, Last question I have for you, Lindsay, is who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Yeah. So uh, there's two types of people I would like to reach out to me. Actually, I have more than that. I'm going to back up. So one, first and foremost, if you are an early stage founder who either has started doing the research, but doesn't really know what your first steps are with your startup, or you have a product, but you cannot connect with customers and you don't know if anyone even wants the thing you have, you should go to lindsayt.com forward slash labs. Uh, check out the six-month experience. I built it for you to be successful. Uh, Second is if you're an established tech company uh, or later on startup and you have a junior UX designer or someone that is UX curious, uh, I do work with them uh, as part of coaching, learning, and development to help get them to a place where they are contributing at the level you need them to contribute to on your team. And the third is I'm actually looking for a mid-level product strategist to work with me on labs um, serving my founders. So if that's you and you're uh, a consultant already one or two years in, um, please reach out to me about that. Uh, hi at lindsayt.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn as well. Very cool. Super exciting. All of that. We'll link to those as well also. And uh, can't thank you enough, Lindsay, for being here and sharing your knowledge and experience with our audience. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. Excited to have you back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Product Launch. I hope you got value out of it. I like to feature product people on my podcast because that's who I love to help. I'm a product strategist, and I can help you scale your business and grow your profit through a product. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you, email me at sean at nextstep.io. That's sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P dot I-O. Or visit my website at nextstep.io. That's N-X-T-S-T-E-P dot I-O. Hey, 
Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.